You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 5, starting at verse 30? We'll be finishing off John chapter 5 this week. And I spoke a couple of weeks ago about the impromptu trial that Jesus faced as a consequence of healing the man at the pool of Bethesda. The Jews were enraged that he would do that on a Sabbath and even more enraged when Jesus claimed to be equal with God. They were so furious that they attempted to try him on the spot in the streets of Jerusalem. So we'll pick up the story in verse 30 of John chapter 5. But Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. In any court of law, as we know, there's a principle of multiple witnesses to prove a case for or against the accused. It's a principle that's enshrined in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 19.15. It's a law that the Jews professed to believe and to obey. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offence that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. The testimony of only one person, of course, doesn't carry very much weight. The accused person may be lying to protect themselves or to protect others, or his accuser may have a hidden agenda and be making a false accusation. You really have no way to be certain if there are no other witnesses. So Jesus proceeds to give the Pharisees who are accusing him not just two or three witnesses, but five witnesses for the defence. Surely... That'll be enough to establish his claims. Those five witnesses are God the Father in verse 32, 37 and 38, John the Baptist in verses 33 to 35, his miraculous signs, verse 36, the scriptures themselves, verses 39 through to 44, and Moses in verses 44 to 47. So in verse 32, Jesus goes on to say, there's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He, that is John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice in his light for a while. Now we consider the evidence of uh, witnesses number two and three a couple of weeks ago. That's John the Baptist and the miraculous signs that Jesus did. Of John the Baptist, Jesus said, you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, as we all know, there are different kinds of light. There's the light of the moon. Now, the moon produces nothing of itself, but it only reflects the light of another. Then there's the light of the sun, which contains all the raw materials within itself to produce light. It's an imperfect analogy, but this is the sort of light that Jesus Christ is. In him was life, it tells us in John 1.4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
And then, of course, there's the light that's produced by a lamp, a burning and shining lamp, as Jesus described, John. Lamps produce light, but a lamp needs to have its fuel topped up by someone else before it runs out. And the wick, of course, doesn't burn forever. It will need to be replaced at some stage. Once those materials are consumed, the lamp goes out. So it was with John the Baptist. John was not a self-sufficient light like his Lord. John eventually burnt out. His lamp went out when Herod arrested him and executed him. But while he was alive, he was both burning, he preached with passion, and he was shining. There was substance to his message. The Jews really should have listened to John. John, of course, wasn't the only witness, and he wasn't even the most important witness either. There are also the multitude of miraculous signs that Jesus performed, which Jesus introduced into evidence. Jesus said in verse 36, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father gave me to accomplish, the very works I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. But not even the miraculous signs that Jesus performed were enough for the Pharisees. They refused to believe this witness too. So Jesus continues in verse 37. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now, Jesus didn't need all these witnesses to bolster his own certainty about his mission. He knew who had sent him. He knew who he was representing. He knew the task he had to fulfill. And he knew that he was representing the Father faithfully. Because he had the witness of God, he wasn't troubled by the opposition of man. And that's not a bad lesson for us, incidentally. If we know who we are in Christ, if we have the confidence that we're doing the Lord's will, we have nothing to fear from others. As Jesus might say, we're then seeking the glory that comes from God, not from man. Rather, Jesus presents these witnesses for the benefit of others, and he presents them for at least two reasons. Firstly, that they would turn from their sin and put their trust in him, or if they refused to believe, that they would be judged by their own confession for rejecting the evidence. Salvation or condemnation, the choice was theirs. And it's ours today too. God forbid that we should be guilty of what Jesus, Jesus accuses the Pharisees of here. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now, when Jesus was baptized, a voice, the Father's voice, came down from heaven and said, You're my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Whether anyone else heard that voice, we don't know for sure. Certainly Jesus heard it. But most likely the Pharisees hadn't heard it. For Jesus told them, His voice you have never heard. For you do not believe on the one whom he has sent. 
Jesus knew that they hadn't heard the father's voice and he knew by the evidence that they themselves had presented. Now Moses heard God's voice back in the tent of meeting in Exodus 33. If they were true followers of Moses as they claimed to be, they too would hear God's voice in Jesus. But they reject Jesus. So it follows that neither are they true followers of Moses. His form you have never seen, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now Jacob saw God's form in Genesis 32 when he wrestled with God. If they were true descendants of Jacob, they too would see God in Jesus. The Apostle Paul later wrote about Jesus, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Jews reject Jesus, so it follows that they are not true descendants of Jacob. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. David had God's word abiding in him, according to Psalm 119. If David truly were their greatest king, they would follow in David's footsteps. Then they too would have God's word abiding in them. But they reject Jesus. So it follows that they do not truly have the faith nor the blessings of King David. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything they sought and everything they claimed to believe in. But they would not have him. It's a damning indictment on them for all the things that they were proud of, for all the ancestors that they boasted in. For all their self-importance, they reveal just how far they are from the true faith of their ancestors. In verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, the Jews had an almost superstitious reverence for the scriptures, as if the very words and even the letters in the words contained some, contained some sort of magical power to grant them eternal life. The scriptures were so precious to them that many of them could recite whole books of the Bible by heart. We today, of course, are beneficiaries of their reverence for the word of God, because they so highly prized the scriptures, they were diligent in copying them out. And they were all laboriously copied by hand. Remember, there were no printing presses in those days. But sadly, their reverence for the scriptures was misdirected. They searched the scriptures. They went over them with a fine-tooth comb, looking to glean the tiniest details of information. They debated them. They wrote about them. They expanded them into restrictive laws, hence the attack on the man who had just been recently healed by Jesus. But they missed the point. The scriptures do indeed contain eternal life, but they contain eternal life only in that they point to Jesus Christ, 
the giver of life. The words themselves are not like some magical incantation. Now, knowledge of scripture doesn't automatically confer life. They're designed to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, as Paul wrote to Timothy. And here was the very one of whom the scriptures bore witness to, Christ Jesus himself, standing in front of them and offering them life. And rather than receive the life he offered, they judged him to be worthy of death. It's not that they could not come to Jesus for life. He was standing there in front of them, calling them to come and follow him. It's not that they could not, it's rather that they would not come. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. And you know, we're not immune to this danger today. Those of us who love the Bible, and especially those of us who are charged with teaching and preaching the Bible, can too easily slip into a love of learning and into a fascination with words and ideas and miss the message of the Bible. And we can come to love the accolades that go along with being known as a Bible scholar. But it's not only the teachers and the preachers who are at risk. Any Christian, indeed anyone with an interest in the Bible, can become absorbed with the minute details and learn to love the debate about the scriptures more than they love the Lord that the scriptures point us to. William Barclay has said of this, the Jews read the scriptures not to search for God, but to find arguments to support their own positions. They did not really love God. They loved their own ideas about him. None of us are impervious to that danger. It's deadly territory. Jesus goes on in verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? It's tragic, isn't it? The Jews ignored and rejected Jesus, the very one who was sent to rescue them and set them free. He came with all the credentials necessary and providing all the evidence they needed to receive him. And none of it was good enough for them. But they were happy to receive someone else, anyone else, anyone who claimed to be the promised Messiah sent to rescue them. Anyone, as long as it wasn't Jesus. Historians have counted something like 64 self-proclaimed messiahs in the decades around the time of Christ. And the Jews followed all of them eagerly. None of the 64 came with the credentials and the proofs that Jesus came with. But never mind that, they came promising just what the Jews wanted to hear. To use biblical language, they came tickling the ears of the Jews. And the Jews followed after them like devoted puppies. It's pathetic when you think about it. 
but it's also devastating. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was a consequence of the Jews receiving the latest in this conga line of false messiahs. And yet the true Messiah stood there in front of them, presenting all the proof they could ever want or they could ever need. And they would not receive him. Here's a simple test for any person, Christian, Hindu, atheist, Mormon, Muslim, agnostic, spiritualist, doesn't matter who you are or what label you choose to go by. Here's a simple test that will identify your relationship with God. Did you receive Jesus Christ? Well, he came with a pretty clear and a pretty profound declaration about who he is. The promised Messiah, Saviour, Lord, Servant, King, Sacrificial Lamb, God himself. What have you done with his claims? Did you receive him for what he claims to be? Did you put your trust in him, acknowledging your own sinfulness and unworthiness of any good from him, and yet crying out to him for mercy anyway? Or did you instead receive him as just a good man, a good teacher, someone who has good advice about loving your neighbour and being a nice person and living a better life, a good example? If that's how you receive Jesus, in reality, You've rejected him. You've rejected him no less than the person who hates him. No less than the Pharisees did. No less than the person who ignores him entirely or refuses to even believe that Jesus ever existed. If that's how you receive Jesus, you haven't received him at all. Rather, your own opinion of him is more important to you than what he has said about himself. Your desire to look good in the eyes of your friends and your workmates is more valuable to you than his call for you to believe and to put your trust in him. In short, you prefer to receive glory from one another and not seek the glory that comes from the only God. And sadly, that will be to your eternal damnation. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can ignore and reject what your friends want you to believe. You can examine the evidence for yourself. You can read his claims about himself. And you can decide to put your trust in him. The choice is yours. Is the glory you receive from your friends more important to you than the glory that comes from the only God? You decide. But be warned, there are consequences, eternal consequences to your decision. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The term Moses is sometimes used as a shorthand term term for the scriptures, 
Sometimes it's a catch-all term for the whole of what is our Old Testament. Sometimes it just refers to the writings of Moses, specifically the first five books of our Bible. And I think this is how Jesus means to use it in verse 45. The Jews hadn't literally put their hope on Moses, the man, to be their saviour. Rather, they'd put their confidence in their ability to obey the law that was laid down in his writings. But it was those very writings that would condemn them, not save them. For the whole Old Testament, Jesus claims here, is written about him. They missed the point entirely. Moses didn't write a list of rules for them to obey so that they would have eternal life. He wrote a list of rules so that they would realise they can't obey them and that they would cry out for help. In fact, one of the great misunderstandings about Christianity is that it consists of a list of rules to obey. The Ten Commandments, for example, and all the other rules about making sure your ox doesn't gore a person and about tithing 10% and about loving your neighbour. The Bible's full of those commands, to be sure. But Christianity is not about obeying those rules so you can get to heaven. Christianity is about realising that you can't obey them. It's a standard that's set too high for us. We just can't do it. Rather, the purpose of the law that's laid out in the Old Testament is to show us a number of things. Firstly, it's to be a mirror reflecting the holy perfection of God. It's also to be a mirror reflecting our sinfulness when compared to God and our inability to meet his standards. It's there to restrain evil by putting boundaries on our conscience and to provide consequences for disobedience. And it's there to show those of us who have put trust in God what it is that's pleasing to God. It's the first two of those that's the most significant here, to show the holy perfection of God and the sinful inability of man. The Pharisees prided themselves on their obedience to the law, even though when we read the Gospels and the rest of the Bible, we see them over and over again displaying hatred for Jesus, one of their own. We see their scheming, their lying, their pettiness, their deception. But they still thought they were good enough to earn a reward from God. Jesus told a parable in Luke 18 about some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And he said two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified. Not the other one, not the Pharisee. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a perfect illustration of what the law is designed to do. And the Pharisee missed it entirely. He thought his pathetic offerings and selective obedience was enough that God owed him something. The tax collector, by contrast, knew he was a miserable failure at obedience to God. The law had shown the tax collector just how far short of God's perfection he had fallen and how unworthy he was of receiving anything good from God. All that was left to him was to cry out for that which he knew he didn't deserve, to cry out for mercy. If only the Pharisees understood that. If only they too would cry out for mercy, this time from Jesus Christ, the God-man standing before them. It's what Moses had been trying to tell them all along. But in their blind hatred of Jesus Christ, in their stubborn pride and their willful ignorance, they rejected everything Moses had told them. Their rejection of Jesus left them open to terrible deception. It left them open to condemnations from the very writings they revered. Moses himself had warned them back in Deuteronomy 31, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I'm yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Right back there in Deuteronomy, the Lord had warned them that the Lord law would condemn them. Rather than be a source of their salvation, Moses and the law would be a witness against them. This book of the law, the Bible, will be a witness against us too. The question for each of us on judgment day won't be, how well did you obey my law? Rather, the question will be, what did you do with my son, my beloved son, who I sent to rescue you? These five witnesses that we've looked at over the last few weeks are not the only witnesses we have, as if more were needed. There was another witness standing and watching the horror of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. John, the author of this gospel, wrote, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. In fact, everything John wrote in this gospel was with the clear intention that we would read and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life, eternal life, in his name. But there are still more witnesses. Jesus says in John 15, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And he goes on to say, And you, disciples, also will bear witness about me. 
because you have been with me from the beginning. So there are still more witnesses, and there are more yet. Each one of us, every Christian, is a witness to Jesus Christ. Interesting thing about being a witness, our English word witness is a translation of the Greek word martyr. What does that remind you of? In fact, a person who is a witness is invested in the one he is defending. He is committed to tell the truth about the one he's defending. And no amount of pressure, not even the threat of death, should cause him to deny his testimony. Hence the reason why we have the English word martyr, one who would die for what he or she knows to be true. Are you so invested in Jesus Christ that you would be a witness, a martyr, never renouncing him, even in the face of sure death? I hope so. I hope you are. For the alternative is worse, unimaginably worse. You face not just physical death one day, you face eternal death and eternal suffering because you rejected him. John said, uh, Jesus said in John 15, 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. We have the evidence. We have the testimony. Those who accepted and believed the evidence that Jesus presented also received salvation. Those who rejected it, the scribes and the Pharisees and the rulers and the religious people in his day, received condemnation. That still applies today. We're not eyewitnesses, for after all, we've, we live 2,000 years too late to see the events for ourselves. But then relatively few people were eyewitnesses even in those days. But have you ever noticed that in a court of law, the judge and the jury don't need to be eyewitnesses themselves to rule on the truth of the claims and the accusations? They merely need to hear the testimony of those who are witnesses. We have no less evidence than most people had back then. In fact, we have more. We have the completed Bible to read for ourselves. We have archaeological evidence that verifies many of the claims of the Bible. We have Christian friends that will testify to the truth of Jesus Christ. And we have the testimony of the Holy Spirit who will guide us into all truth. If only we will open our ears and open our hearts to hear him. If you have not done that yet, if you've not yet accepted the testimony of all these witnesses, I invite you to do that today. Jesus, I don't really know you might pray or understand all that the witnesses have said about you, but I now know enough that I can accept their testimony and put my trust in you. I ask you, Jesus, to confirm their evidence to me so that I too will put my trust in you for eternal life. If you've never done something like that before, would you do it now? Would you receive his testimony? 
and the testimony of others and cry out with the tax collector, God have mercy on me, a miserable sinner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you presented no shortage of witnesses, no shortage of evidence for the Jews of Jesus' day and for us today to know that Jesus is true, he is real, his claims are genuine, and to put our trust in him. Lord, we thank you that for those of us who have done that, that you have opened our eyes to this testimony, opened our eyes to the truth and changed our hearts so that we would believe and believe for eternal life. Lord, we thank you. We will be eternally grateful for that. For those, Lord, who have instead put their trust in their own abilities to do good or put their trust in the false falsehood that you don't exist, Lord, or that there is no judgment to come. For those, Lord, we pray that you'll open their eyes and open their hearts to receive the testimony of truth, that Jesus Christ is everything he claims to be, that he is saviour of the world, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that he is the redeemer, that he is and wants to be the brother of those who put their faith in him, that he is the one who reconciles us to the Father, carrying the burden and the guilt and the shame and the judgment and condemnation of our sin on his shoulder on the cross when he was forsaken by you, Father. We pray that everyone who hears the words of these testimonies, who hears the testimony of various Christians, who reads the words of Scripture for themselves, Holy Spirit, you will open their eyes and their hearts to receive Jesus Christ, the one who stood before the Pharisees and who stands before us today as true God, and true man, and our Saviour. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us this testimony in the writings of Scripture so that we can read for ourselves and we can grow in knowledge and faith in the Son of God and in assurance of salvation for all our days. In the name of our precious Saviour, our Lord and our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.